Amen and amen. Thank you, band, once again. Good morning again to all of you. Uh, let me start here by telling you about a um, little story from 1996. College grad, his name was Peter Davies. He was on holiday in Kenya. Um, he was on a hike through the bush when he came across a young bull elephant standing with one leg raised in the air. Uh, the elephant seemed distressed, so Peter approached it very, very carefully. He got down on one knee, inspected the elephant's foot, and he noticed or realized that there was a large piece of wood embedded in the elephant's foot. As carefully and gently as he could, Peter worked out that bit of wood with his knife, after which the elephant very gingerly put down its foot. Um, the elephant turned to face the man, stared at him for several tense moments, trumpeted loudly, turned, walked away. Peter never forgot that event. 20 years later, he's at the Chicago Zoo with his kid. As they approached the elephant enclosure, one of the elephants turned and walked to Peter, and where uh, Peter and his son were standing outside the wall. And this large bull elephant, he stared right at Peter, and he raised up his foot and put it back down again. He raised it up, put it back down again. Several times he did this while staring right at the man. Remembering the encounter in 1996, Peter could not help wondering, is this the same elephant? So he summoned up his will. He climbed over the enclosure into the elephant pen, cage area, went right up to the elephant. The elephant trumpeted once more, wrapped his trunk around Peter's legs, slammed him against the wall, and shattered every bone in his body. <laughs> Peter later said from his hospital bed, Guess it wasn't the same elephant. <laughs> okay, so that's an old joke. But it does illustrate an even older truth that just because we imagine something to be so, I had you guys going there for a while, didn't I? Yeah. It sounded so real. I know. I think the dates really sealed it. Just because we imagine something to be so, it does not make it so. In fact, when we wrongly impute the character of a person or thing to a different person or thing, the damage that we end up doing can be quite substantial. Which brings us, if you brought your Bibles, to Exodus chapter 20 and the second commandment. This is page 61 if you need to use one of the black Bibles. Um, if you are a brand new guest this morning, like Pastor Carl mentioned earlier, we are working through this entire summer. We're taking it to go through all of the Ten Commandments, and we come today to the second commandment, which references engraven or carved images. Last week, we worked through commandment number one, which said, can you guys say it with me? You shall have no other gods before me. That's commandment number one. Now commandment number two is not a repeat of that. It's not saying the same thing in a different way. It's saying a different thing that is often misunderstood. So let me read it and then we'll study it. Exodus 20, beginning at verse one, uh, but our focus is going to be verses four through six. Here now, the very word of the Lord. 
And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And verse 4, one more time. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thus ends the reading of God's word. So one of the things that I'm concerned to do together as a church family throughout the summer is not just teach on the individual commandments, but also help us build some uh, biblical hermeneutics or interpretive principles that we can bring to bear on all of the commandments. So if you missed weeks one and two, you can catch up online. We post those usually every Monday morning. Um, But within those first couple of sermons, we tried to begin laying out like three or four building blocks, theological building blocks for how we read, understand, and then practice out the Ten Commandments. Um, And so at the risk of losing my entire congregation in the first five minutes here, I'm going to go ahead and review these because I think they're really important and hopefully helpful for every one of us. Um, By far the most important building block is that when it comes to the commandments, the imperative follows the indicative. Okay, The imperative follows the indicative which is to say the moral law is all about the who before it's ever about the do. The I am gives foundation to the you shall. The Ten Commandments, they're not irksome. They're not a chore. They're a phenomenal, liberating privilege, like a dad handing a letter to his child and saying, I love you so much. I want you to have the best life in a broken world that you possibly can. This is the way. Live like this and you'll find freedom. If you you picture in your head a locomotive, right? Sitting out in the middle of a field somewhere. Is that train free? (laughs) Well, it's not constrained by anything. It's also not going anywhere. It's completely useless. Put that train on a pair of tracks, and now it's free to go be and do what it was made to do. Well, so is the law of God to God's people when we know, when we have met the lawgiver. When we know the who, we're then empowered to do what we were made to do. That's the first and the most important theological block when it comes to reading through these commandments. 
Theological building block number two, the Ten Commandments are divided into two tables. This is familiar to some of you, brand new to others. Commandments number one through four, when you read through them, you begin to realize, ah, they all have a vertical orientation. They're all about our relationship to God. Commandments number five through ten all have a horizontal orientation. They're all about our relationship to other people. And so when we come to Jesus from his mouth in Matthew 22, he summarizes the entire moral law when he says in response to what is the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with everything you have. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So right there we have a hierarchy set up. The most important commandment is those first four taken together, which tells us how to love God. And then we say, ah, how do I love my neighbor? What does that really mean? Commandments five through 10 tell us exactly how we love our neighbor as ourselves. So Vertical orientation, horizontal orientation, building block number three. Um, we've hit this a few times now. There are three primary uses for the moral law. I've told you that the moral law can be pictured like a pair of shackles and that it restrains external acts of evil. It does not change the heart. It can also be pictured like a magnifying glass in that it highlights the character and nature, the priorities of God himself. And the moral law functions for us like a mirror because we look into it and it looks back at us. We look into God's law and it reveals to us our own guilt and our need of God. And then theological block number four, uh, we pointed out last week how every one of these commandments has both a positive and a negative component to it, which is to say that for every one of them, this was reflected in our catechism that we read as our confession of faith, and we're going to keep doing that every single week for the duration of the summer, um, every single commandment has both something to be fulfilled and something that is forbidden, something that is required of us and something that we must avoid at all costs. Okay, so that's some principles we laid down so far. I'm going to add one more theological building block today. Uh, The Old Testament actually contains three categories of law, but only one of those categories is still active today. Anybody who has been through our leadership training course, and a good number of you have been at this point, um, what is the first category of Old Testament law? Who can tell me? That was was not overwhelming. (laughs) I'm a little bit nervous right now about my leadership training course. Can everybody say ceremonial? Yes, good, excellent, wonderful. The ceremonial law is the first category of the Old Testament law. Is it still active today? I heard somebody say yes. We should probably get together after the service and talk about the goat sacrifices you're doing in your backyard still. (laughs) So ceremonial law, that's in reference to all of the priestly sacrificial system, the ritual, all of that was pointing toward, all those sacrifices were pointing toward the one final perfect sacrifice that would be Jesus himself. So because of Christ, once he came in the cross, the ceremonial law is abrogated for all time. So we got the ceremonial law. What's another category of Old Testament law? Oh, good. Yes. Yes. Wonderful. We're warming up. So we got the civil law. That's all the the judicial governmental rules. Is it still active today? It's not still active today. The principles are, the Westminster calls it the general equity thereof. The principles are still active, but the specifics of the Old Testament civil law, those were abrogated with the, with the um, uh, 
going away of the theocratic nation state of Israel. When that ceased to exist, the civil laws as such no longer applied specifically to us, although the principles are valued. So we, we got ceremonial abrogated by Christ. We got civil abrogated by close of nation state of Israel. And then the third category of Old Testament law is the moral law. Is it still active today? It better be because we're spending like 12 weeks on it. Good. And Jesus himself made it abundantly clear that yes, the moral law matters for us, which is interesting then because if you're a new Christian, you don't know this yet, but if you've been in church world long enough, you've begun to imbibe the idea that there are definitely nine commandments and then one maybe in, maybe out. (laughs) Talking about the fourth commandment, the whole Sabbath day thing. We've got a church here And I dare say some of us in this room have never paused to ask, even though it's sitting right there on the first table, what would it mean in a grace-filled New Testament context for me and my family to keep the Sabbath day holy? What What would it look like in the 21st century for us to treat this day as separate and different from the other six days. And we're going to get to that in a couple of weeks, the fourth commandment. Today, we're just on the second commandment, which no one really disagrees with in the same way, but that's probably because we often think it's just a rerun of the first commandment. First commandment says, don't have another God. Second commandment says, don't make a carved image of God. That's kind of the same thing, right? So... We don't really live in a culture where many of us are carving little gods, so I think we're good on this one, and we can just move on to the third one right now. Well, I hate to hold you up, (laughs) but it's true the first commandment deals with who we worship. The second commandment actually deals with how we worship, not just our theology, but our methodology. Here's what I mean. If you kept your Bibles open, flip forward just a few pages. Exodus, same book, but now chapter 32. Exodus 32. Remember Moses ascended up on high. He went up up into the mountain. He was gone for a while. He was still gone for a while. And all the people kind of started to get restless. Sort of like when you go to Cumbies and you tell your kids you're going to be 10 minutes, but you're really 35. And then all kinds of craziness breaks out back at home at around the 20-minute mark, right? Well, here, the people start to get pretty restless. And so to quiet them down, Aaron, who is the brother of Moses, formed a calf of gold. What's the problem with that? Well, he was making a false god, right? Not exactly. The golden calf was a false representation of the true God. Exodus 32, if you turn there, look at verse 2. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Verse 4, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the what? That last word there into verse 5. 
Lord, all caps. Whenever you see in the English Bible the word Lord in all caps, what's the Hebrew word behind it? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yahweh. The the personal, distinctive name of the God who is there. The name he gave his people to refer to him, Yahweh. That's, That's who Aaron's trying to worship here. Aaron didn't invent a new God. He made an idol to worship the real God. Aaron made a calf to worship Yahweh. Aaron's sin was not creating a false God. It was worshiping the true God in a false way. That's how it starts. The Israelites at first weren't turning to Baal or Molech or any of the other Canaanite gods. That'll come later. They began by worshiping Yahweh in their own way. First commandment says, don't worship the wrong God. The second commandment says, don't worship the right God wrongly. I'm not talking right now about um, Jesus pictures in your kid's coloring book. I'm talking about the church gathered in formal worship. Do not mold, do not engrave, do not carve, do not paint images or objects to try and capture the essence of who God is. Why not? Why is it such a big deal? Like we only got ten commandments. Why is it one of them? Uh, Many of you will have grown up in Catholic churches or Orthodox churches, and in each of those there is usually all kinds of of icons or saints. Um, Weekend before last, uh, my daughter's recital, um, I was up at Chapel of the Cross in Westboro, which is a a great church. And during the intermission um, of the dance recital, I was chatting with a very young guy, um, maybe early 20s, and he was from an Orthodox background. It was his very first time ever setting foot in a Protestant church. And he was saying how weird it was to be in a church building where there was no iconography at all. And some of you can relate, right? Many of you grew up Roman Catholic, and then maybe you visited MCC, and you thought to myself, wow, it's really simple in here. There's no paintings, there's no statues, there's none of that stuff. Is God a dentist by any chance? It's just so plain. Well, the reason for that is not because we're lacking artsy people in the church. The reason is because of the second commandment. Martin Luther once said, that to which your heart clings and entrusts itself is really your God. And of course, idols demand always in one way or another that you feed them, right? Every idol, physical or non-physical, they demand that you serve them, that you sacrifice to them. An idol can be anything. It can be non-physical for sure. And certainly in the 21st century, that's probably more where our challenge is going to come from. Your kids, 
your health, your GPA, your income. An idol is often a good thing, which we twist into a God thing, which then has made it a bad thing. Well, at Sinai Base Camp, Aaron didn't begin by wanting to worship a new God. He just wanted to put together a nice little picture of the true God. And so, you know, from Egypt, that's where they're all coming out of. And in Egypt, the bull was a picture of strength and power. So it was kind of a natural choice. Aaron wasn't violating commandment number one. He was violating commandment number two. Because a mere image always, in some way, diminishes the subject. If you think about that for a moment, you'll know it's true. You know those little photo booths at the mall? or at the movie theater. By the way, why do they still have those? (laughs) I refuse to let my children put money into those. I say, we can go sit in them, and then we will take a selfie for free. (laughs) Or maybe a better example, if you go to the DMV, and you get your new license, and what are you going to do for the next five years? You're going to spend the next five years apologizing for the bad picture. (laughs) Oh, that's not a very good picture of me. Although, let's be honest, for some of you, that is what you look like. (laughs) I'm sorry, you know we can see you. The point is, every picture, even, (laughs) forget the DMV, the the very best headshot that ever was taken for your your corporate world or, or for your school senior picture where you thought, man, that's fantastic. The very best picture in some way diminishes the totality of who you are. An image can only capture some of who you are. It cannot possibly capture all of who you are. How much more then does this apply to the God of creation? Here's an example. A carved Jesus hanging on a cross. It speaks to his sacrifice. It does not speak to his power, to his majesty, to his glory. A Jesus hanging on a cross depicts his suffering, but it obscures his victory. Graven images are grave mistakes. Not only because of that which is wrong that they will display, but because of that which is true and real that they do not display. Graven images are grave mistakes not only because of that which is true that they don't display, but also because of that which is not true that they do display. God is saying in the second commandment, don't worship me in your own way. And you're a bright congregation. You can think that this goes beyond like little carved things, right? Don't worship me in your own way. You don't get to design how I will be worshipped. That's what God is saying. And so he hands us a scripture, and he says, this is how I want to be worshipped, by singing. And he gives us the Psalms as a, as a model of the kind of things that we're going to sing. By praying, by the taking of oaths and vows, by preaching my word, which is how I have shown myself to you. God is saying, don't worship me your own way. Idolatry, idolatry is like dating a picture, not the person, right? 
is it just leaves way too much room for us to fill in the blanks. God made us in in his image, and we've been returning the favor ever since. Immediately after the first commandment, God added the second commandment because he knew what we would do otherwise. Oh, this, this God, he's, he's much too large. He's much too vast for me to grasp and to understand. So I'm just going to shrink him down a little bit. I'm just going to diminish him a little bit so I can kind of understand and better appreciate him. And ultimately what we're saying is so I can control him. In other words, God gave the second commandment to guard the first. Because worshiping the wrong God inevitably leads, excuse me, worshiping the right God wrongly inevitably leads to worshiping the wrong God entirely. I messed that up, so I'm going to say it again because I think it matters. Worshiping the right God wrongly inevitably leads to worshiping the wrong God entirely. Which is why we started where we started. This elephant (laughs) may remind me of a friendly elephant, but if I decide in my head that they're the same elephant, this elephant may kill me. (laughs) And that's how idols work. Whether they're carved out of wood like the old days, or we carve them out of our career, or our finances, or possessions, or family, in the end, they always demand sacrifice. Watch yourself here, church. Our hearts are like little idol-making factories. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that. And it's exactly right. We do this all the time. The, the, the little rabbit's foot hanging from your mirror in your car. I mean, if it's just decoration, I don't care what's hanging from your mirror. But if you ascribe that little rabbit's foot to somehow protecting you, that this will keep me lucky. Why do you believe that? It did not keep the rabbit lucky. (laughs) (laughs) The the cross hanging around your neck. Like, if it's just jewelry, I don't care what you got hanging around your neck. But the moment you start to think that there's some spiritual value to this piece of metal, that makes me closer to God. Get rid of it. Sell it on Craigslist because you're breaking the second commandment. An idol is anything other than God that we put in the place of God or we use to get to God. Does that make sense? An idol is anything other than God that we put in place of God or we use to get to God. Some of us have made idols of our jobs, our physical appearance, our children, our organ pipes, (laughs) anything. Our hearts are idol-making factories. And every idol, physical or otherwise, demands that we sacrifice to it, that we feed it. So commandment number one, you must not worship false gods. Commandment number two, you must not worship the true God falsely. God says, do not worship me as you imagine me to be. 
Worship me as I reveal myself to be. You know, a long time after Moses received these Ten Commandments, you fast forward through the centuries and the millennia, and you arrive at the Apostle Paul, and he's writing a letter to the Colossian church. And listen to what he said. In Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is, check it out, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Anybody want to guess the Greek word behind image? E-I-K-O-N is the transliteration into English. Icon. Paul was telling the Colossian church, and he's telling us, guys, we've got one image, one icon, okay? He is Jesus. He is the exact representation of God because he is God. He is, in his very being, Jesus is the fulfillment of the second commandment. Idols demand you make a sacrifice. Christ says at the cross, I am the sacrifice. And so we got to ask ourselves, if we're going to do the hard work, if we're, if we're going to be a little bit more mature, a little bit more um, cognitively sophisticated than simply dismissing this one as referencing little tiki idols or something made of stone that sits on the mantle, then we've got to go the next step here, church, and we've got to ask, are there any idols in your life? Any, any little trinkets that you subscribe superstitious value to? Maybe. In this audience, I think that's probably not going to be a major problem for us. What about the non-physical things that are not God, that we put in the place of God, or we use to get to God? And of course, you, I've told you before, the single greatest diagnostic question to find who is your functional God is simply... If only blank, I would be happy. Fill in the blank. And that's your functional God. That's your idol. So you, you begin to see, when we look into the mirror of the law, we find we might not be quite as clean as we thought we were at first glance. Idols and icons cannot save me. The law cannot save me. But the law can point me to the one image, the one icon, who can. Idols demand you make a sacrifice. Jesus says, I am the sacrifice. So rest in him. for joining us for today's message. Medway Community Church would love to welcome you as our guest one day soon. 
Our church family meets every Sunday morning for worship and also offers a wide variety of small group and ministry opportunities. To learn more, please visit us on the web at medwaycommunitychurch.org. We look forward to seeing you soon. Washing all my shit.